We could preach in the dark, but I have a feeling no one would enjoy that, including myself. The best part about preaching is getting to see your beautiful faces stare back at me blankly like I'm talking to myself. So thank you for being here. Uh, Good morning, Forest Park. Good morning. Great to see you. My name is Preston Waller. I'm the student pastor here. Uh, Pastor Scott is in Arizona now. He moved from Texas to Arizona, and he is coming back tomorrow. So um, we are kicking off a new series today entitled Jesus, Magic, and Mojo. Uh, A series title I think is kind of creatively uh, just engaging. It's funny. Um, But the whole purpose of this series, really quickly, just to give you a synopsis, is that we're really trying to address the issue of maybe where our passion for our faith has gone. Um, One of the things I've noticed in not only your lives, but my life as well, is that ever since the pandemic, a lot of us have felt that passion for our faith, our passion for the church, our passion that we once had at one point in our life kind of zapped from us through circumstances, through variety of things. And we want to try to give some ways that maybe we can reclaim that and not only reclaim it, but not lose it again. Um, I deal with this all the time. Um, being a student pastor, I see this over and over again. I take my students to summer camp every year. And I was this way when I was their age too. You go to summer camp and you get it this high off of Jesus where it's like, man, the music is great. The preaching is great, which says something, I guess, to how I preach to them on a monthly basis. And they are like, man, this is amazing. I love this. And as soon as we get back on Friday, like they're like, man, I can't wait to go back next year, which always makes me encouraged to know they had a great time and really grew in their faith. But what happens is by Monday morning or even Saturday morning, the next day, that kind of high they're on fades away. And throughout the whole next 11 months, I'll just keep hearing, I just can't wait to go back to summer camp. I just can't wait to go back to the winter retreat. Uh, I need that feeling again. And I think we can't just pick on the kids, right? I think that's typical of maybe where we are as Christians today, that I've heard many a times from many a people that say, would say something like this, I've got out of the routine of being a church pastor over the last couple of months, and I can just tell my faith has kind of gone down because of it. And what I need to do is I need to come back and start getting in the routine of coming back to church, and then I'll begin to grow in my faith again. Almost this idea that there's magic in these walls here, that as soon as you walk in and the music plays and the the message starts and the coffee's brewing, that somehow magic floats through the air and the pastor spend all Saturday night sprinkling pixie dust around the stage and somehow that makes this place magical. But that's not the case either. But I will encourage you, man, this is a human issue. It's so much a human issue. It's a human issue for even me as a pastor. I can't tell you how many Sundays I've had in the course of being six years in ministry now where I've woke up and I've said, oh, I've got I've to go to church. Like I've got a, a job to do. I've got to be here. I've got to encourage people. And it, you know, it's hard, especially when you have people like Scott and Lana who have been here so long and they've seen the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. We lose our passion too. We struggle every day to feel that energy for our faith like we once did. So this series is gonna be designed to tell us how we can recapture that. And I wanna tell you that the number one way that I'm gonna talk about today and how we recapture that passion for our faith is going to come through the church. And when I say the church, I don't mean the church as I've just described it, but the church in a different manner. But before we jump in, I wanted to share with you uh, something I was doing as I was preparing this message this week that I found really interesting. It's going to really relate to maybe where we're at today. 
There's a museum in Los Angeles, and it's called the Museum of Broken Relationships. And this museum is a kind of a museum donated that has donations of past relationships, current breakups, current heartaches that people have experienced. And they donate kind of these mementos and they write a story along with it. And they kind of give them to the museum to kind of be these exhibit pieces. And it's funny if you go on their website and actually read some of the pieces, the exhibit pieces they have in the museum and the stories behind it. Some of them are touching. I wanna to share two of them with you really quickly. This is one of the photos, one of the exhibits you'll see in the museum in LA. And it's entitled, their exhibit piece is entitled, I have it right here, A Drawing of Us Made by a Stranger in the Train. And this is the story that goes along with it. Uh, this man writes, we met at a student's Valentine's Day party. The connection was immediate. She came into my life at its lowest point. I had just lost my company and was heavily in debt, working two jobs I really hated to pay back my loan. She didn't care. She adored me and loved me blindly and unconditionally. She was the only positive thing in my life and she kept me going. One evening we were in the Metro getting a pizza for a movie night at home. A guy we didn't know approached us and asked if we were a couple. Defensively, I said yes and asked why does he wish to know? He said, your love feels so special so I wanted to give this to you. He handed us a torn first page of a book he was reading on which he drew us and wished us all the best. We were so touched and amazed we didn't know what to say. She was my soulmate, my best friend, lover, and the love of my life. That's why I broke up with her. My life at the time felt like a sinking ship, and I didn't want her to go down with me. She was accepted into a good university abroad, but was about to give up her dreams in order to support me and wouldn't listen to me when I told her to go. So I broke up with her and broke her heart. About four months later, when I almost lost my life in a work accident, I contacted her and told her uh, the accident made me rethink my life and I would be moving abroad to support her like she supported me. She told me I'm a couple months too late. She has moved on with a new relationship and she doesn't want me in her life. I couldn't find the strength to throw this drawing away. I never stopped loving her for a moment and I'm happy for her and I hope that someday I will find someone as amazing as she was. So a very beautiful story, right? A very touching story about maybe a memento that this man just could not seem to get over or give away or throw away. Uh, but I, I will say that is one example of like the fun, the funny or the great ones, but there are funny ones like this. This is a dog's hamburger chew toy. And literally as this woman submitted <laughs> this for the exhibit piece, she had a one-liner story that went along with it. She said, his dog left more traces behind than he did. So very, you know, comical in some senses, um, but that is just a measure of what I want to talk about today, that in real life, you and I as human beings, we crave relational intimacy. We crave it. We want to be close to people. We want to feel loved. We want to feel connected. We want to feel like we belong. We want to feel like we're a part of something bigger than ourselves, that love and things and intimacy matter to us. And the tough part about life is we all crave relational wholeness, but so often we experience relational brokenness. And we experience brokenness in a broken world day in and day out, but we crave as human beings what it means to be relationally whole. And part of that is because of how God has created you and I. One of the first things we know and learn about mankind is in Genesis 1, when God says it is not good that man should be alone that life isn't meant to be lived by ourselves. We are created for community. Another passage that comes from Acts 2 uh, 
kind of reiterates the need for community in our life as human beings. Acts 2 verse 42, Luke is writing this passage and what had happened was Peter came and preached the message. Apostle Peter that we know and love so much came and preached the message. The Holy Spirit fell on people and thousands of people gave their life to Jesus on the spot. They began to speak in tongues. It was a beautiful message that really captivated Christ and people gave their life to him, 3,000 on the day. And then this is what happens directly following that kind of a revivalistic movement we see in Acts 2. Verse 42, they say, the early church, the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That these people experience God's moving in an amazing way, more so than maybe you and I have ever experienced God's hand move in our lives. They saw 3,000 people come to Jesus at one service. They saw the Holy Spirit fall. They saw people giving their life left and right. And their response was to start meeting together, to form community, to pray with one another, to eat with one another. And I think that's so powerful because I know, I don't know, I can't put like 100%, but 99% sure that if we had that happen in America, we had a one service, 3,000 people gave their life to Jesus on the spot. I know without a shadow of a doubt what would happen the following week. On Monday morning, staff would meet and say, we've got to make that happen again. We need to start a conference. We need to call Peter up and say, you need to come and preach like once a year. We'll put money into it. We'll put money into a big band to come and sing all these hip songs. We'll have him preach for an hour. We want to experience that feeling again. Why wouldn't we make that a routine thing? But that's not what the early church did. The early church said, that was great, but now let's begin to commune, commune together. Let's begin to meet together without Peter. Let's meet in your home. Let's eat together. Let's pray together. Let's worship together as an intimate group. And I think that's telling about why the early church grew as much as it did. There are thousands of people that give their life to Jesus and their immediate reaction afterwards is I want to be with others that experience the same thing I've experienced. We all want real community. You do, whether you know it or not. I want real community. But the reason we don't pursue real community is because of this truth right here. Real community is messy, it's difficult, and it takes time. And we don't want to put in the work or deal with other people's issues or deal with that uh, two years it's gonna take before someone will finally open up. We want real community, but we settle for sub, subsurface levels of relationships social media relationships where we don't even really know this person. We just know what they post or we know that you're like my third cousin on my mom's side twice removed and I've met you maybe once at Thanksgiving. We don't strive for real community because real community takes a lot of work. It's difficult. It involves messy people with messy lives who try to come together. So as we talk about the church today, the church being the number one way that you and I experience a reigniting of our passion for God and our passion for our faith. I want to make one clarification because I'm gonna use the word church a lot today and I need to make sure we're on the same page. So when I talk about the church, I am not talking about the church as the organized institution. Forest Park Church, this building and the staff who is paid to run it, I'm not talking about the organized institution called the church but I'm talking about the organic community, the church, the 
organic community of Christians that I just described in Acts 2 verse 42. This is what the church is. You are the church. I am the church. This building is not the church, but we are the church. And so when I use the word today, always make sure you're, you're putting it in your head. He's not talking about Forest Park. I'm talking about you and the person sitting next to you. I'm talking about the church as Christ's followers. So today, I want to tell you two things that the church is and how it functions. And I want to tell you why the church being these things is actually what's going to lead you to a new igniting faith with Jesus Christ. So the number one thing that the church is supposed to be is the church is supposed to be a preview. When we commune together, when we gather together, when we form community together, you and I should be a preview to others of what eternity will look like. That eternity in a very real sense will look like this, not with me standing up here and preaching, but us gathered together. And I love trailers, I love previews. I just took one of my students to see the new Thor movie a couple of weeks ago. It was the first time I've been in the movies in forever. So I'm kind of am off key on what the new movies coming out are. But good trailers, good previews are very rare to find, I feel like nowadays. But when you see one, you always kind of leave being like, I want to see that movie. Good previews keep you engaged. They keep your attention. They kind of tell the story without telling you the story. You can tell what the movie is gonna be about. And it won't spoil anything for you. You'll be like, I need to go see that movie. One of the worst trailers I've ever seen in my life, and I'm just gonna put this out here. I'm a big MCU fan. I love Marvel. Anyone else love Marvel movies? I love them. One of the worst trailers of all time is the Captain America Civil War trailer. And if you've watched it, you know why. Captain America Civil War is probably one of the best MCU movies of all time. I love it. But when you're watching the trailer before it came out in 2016, they spoiled the best part of the movie in the trailer, that Spider-Man was incorporated into the MCU. I was like, why would you spoil that? That is the best part of the movie. That would have been the most amazing reaction. I would have never seen it coming, but now I do because you spoiled it to me. There are such things as good previews and bad previews, and the church is supposed to be a good preview to other people as what heaven will look like. The church is supposed to be a diverse community, diverse in all senses, not just ethnically, but socioeconomically and politically, that there should be in a, this room right here and everyone watching online, there should be people who straight up, I'll tell you, I vote Republican every time. And then there should be people on the other side of the room, I vote Democrat every time. There should be people who are rich or poor, who are white, who are black, who are everything in between, sitting in the same room, gathered together, because of Jesus Christ. If we want to become a good preview into heaven, we must learn to surround ourselves with diverse people who don't always look like us and act like us. When people look at the church, they should say things like this. That's what it looks like for love to overcome hate. That's what it looks like for people to be treated with dignity regardless of their social statuses. That's what it looks like for someone to use power not to coerce people, but to serve people. When people look at how we gather and who we gather with, they should see the beauty of the gospel coming into light, which is every person from every nation coming together for one sole purpose, because Jesus Christ is Lord. John says it this way in Revelation 7. He says, after this, look, 
I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That in eternity, all nations, all tribes will be present and they will all gather together for one sole purpose, to worship Jesus Christ as Lord. You may say, Preston, if I'm honest with you, I'm not, I, would never, I don't think any of you would say this out loud, but you may say, Preston, there are some people like I just can't jive with. I don't like them. I don't like how they think. I don't like how they vote. I don't like how they spend their money. I don't like how they talk to people. I don't like how they lead. I don't like how they do that. There are probably some people that you don't jive with and you may push back against diversity. But one of the things I wanna tell you is that you can run from diversity, but if you're a Christian, you can never fully get away because in heaven, you will be linked arm in arm with the people most unlike you, all at the throne of God worshiping him. Republican, Democrat, poor, rich, white, black will all link arms together for the rest of eternity and be surrounded by Jesus Christ and God on his throne. You can run from it. You can even try to not have it in your earthly life. But at the end of the day, you will one day be surrounded by a diverse group of people who all love Jesus Christ. And the church is supposed to be that. And the reason I say that this is what the church is supposed to be is because the church being a diverse people group is what's best for you and your faith. You, you have to, we have to start understanding that if we want to grow, we have to surround ourselves with people who aren't like us. It's our natural human tendency to surround ourselves with groups of people who look like us, act like us, vote like us, spend money like us, who enjoy the same hobbies as we do. That's human nature. I prefer to hang around Patriots fans. They're the best fans in the world. I prefer to hang around people who enjoy the same things I do. Of course I do. But the gospel pushes against that and says, no, what's best for you and what's best for all is to include yourself in a group of people who aren't like you, who don't see the world the way you see it. How can we ever grow past our current mindsets and beliefs if we uh, surround ourselves with people who just reaffirm that we've got it right? Man, you, you vote right, you spend money right, you worship right, you see this right. You'll never grow because they'll just reaffirm that you've got it all right because they think they've got it all right. If you want to grow, if you want to reignite your faith, sometimes it's gonna come by sitting in a circle, sitting in a room with people who actually are the exact opposite of you and would challenge your presuppositions about life, about your theology. And not that you have to accept everything they say, but you can say, I've learned something new today. Maybe I haven't looked at it that way that this is what we're called to do, to be inclusive, to be in an environment around other Christians who look and act differently than we do. And that's what's best for us. Jenny Allen, who is an author, she's uh, wrote a lot of books. My wife really loves her. Um, her women's group has just walked through her book, Find Your People, which is a very good book. Um, it's a book all about, obviously, how to find your people, um, very good about community. She says something in her book that I think is very, very practical for us to understand today. She says this, it won't be on the screen. Uh, she says, but what if the intimate circle we're craving is actually found in the wider network of the village that we've been missing? And what she's talking about there is that you and I oftentimes wanna put too much pressure on our close knit community. 
on our two or three friends. I'm an introvert by nature. I don't always jive well with everybody. I'm kind of socially awkward. Um, I have a very hesitancy in my heart to call someone friend just because I, I value that title. But people like me say, well, I only need two friends in my life, right? One of them being my wife and the other one, Jesus. Like I only need two friends in my life. But what we don't understand is people like me put too much expectations on those two friends. They expect them to wear four different hats. And what Jenny Allen's saying is, why don't you create a wider circle of friends and really understand that each one has their role to play in your life and each one has a strength to bring to you. I'll give you an example. Instead of having just two friends, let's imagine you have five to six friends because you put yourself out there and you start knowing more people. And you say to yourself, I've had a really bad week. This work week has sucked. Everything's gone wrong. My marriage is starting to get really tough. I'm just really depressed. I'm really down right now. Having two friends that you would never say this, but in your mind, they're best at encouraging you. That's their strength. Maybe they don't always give the best advice, but you know that every time you hang out with them, you're gonna laugh, you're gonna have a good time, they're gonna take your mind off of everything that you struggle with this week, and they're gonna be there just to make you have a good time wherever you go, no matter what you do. In those moments, lean into those two friends. Go out, have fun, have dinner together. And, And then maybe you're coming to a point in your life where you have to make a real big decision and you don't know what to do. You're kind of at a crossroads and you're like, I don't know which way to go. I'm very confused. I could do either one. Have two or three friends that you see as mature, as they, they're just very wise, and you know you can sit down with them across from a coffee shop table and just say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. Here's my two options. What do you think? And they're gonna be wise. They're not gonna crack jokes. They're gonna help you try to see a different perspective and walk with you through those decisions. Use those two friends for their strengths. But what often happens is we have two friends and we say, why can't you encourage me and help me with, your, with advice? Why can't you challenge me? Why can't you love me? Why can't you support me? And it's like, maybe their strength isn't to play five different roles for your life. Maybe what's best is to create a wider network of friendships and utilize and lean on people for what their strengths and roles in your life really are. And when we create ourselves a community of diverse believers, that's what we can do here at the church. There are people here today that I know if I'm having a bad week, I'll go hang out with them. Ron Bates is one of them, our sound guy. He just makes me laugh, it's fun. And there's people at this church that I know if I'm having a tough decision, I'll go talk to them. Eddie Hyman's one of those, who's one of our directional team members. I know that that's what they're good to help me with. They know, and I know what their role is in my life. And if we want to grow, if we want to reignite our faith, We have to start surrounding ourselves with the right people. Maybe the issue with why your passion has waned with your faith has less to do with there being a problem with your faith and more of a problem with who you've chosen to surround yourself with over the past two years. That we are created to see the church as a preview. The second thing the church is supposed to be is an instrument. The church is a preview. We are to look like what heaven will look like one day. But the church is supposed to also be an instrument that in a very real way, you and I are the instruments that God is going to use to bring about his mission here on earth. That you and I will be the instruments God uses to bring hope, peace, love, and healing to our community with. And so often we have a hard time believing that. But I wanna show you going back to Acts 2 now, We read Acts 2, verse 42, just a couple of minutes ago. But I think these two verses speak even more to the kind of community that was present in the early church. So Acts 2, verses 44 through 45, Luke writes this. 
He says, now all believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed proceeds to all as any had need. I want you to hear that because this is what the core of a Christian community is. Everything I just described about a diverse community meeting together to help one another, I wanna be transparent. You can find that anywhere. You can find a diverse community at your work. You can find your diverse community at a bar. You can find your diverse community just about anywhere you wanna find it. But what makes Christian community different than just a diverse community is that we don't seek to only serve the people who are a part of our community, but we seek to serve those outside of our community as well and be light and salt to those who are not a part of our community. And that's what the early church did. They met together and they prayed and they ate together and they studied the scriptures together, but they also gathered together and said, hey, uh, I've got some things I don't need and I want to donate them. That I'm putting in 21st century language. They didn't have trucks back then, but I have three cars sitting in my driveway. All of them are paid off. I use my truck to take the trash off to the dump maybe twice a month. And there's a lady in my church who spoke up and said she has no consistent transportation to work. You know what I'm gonna do? She can have it. I don't need it. I got 5,000 back on my tax returns. I really only needed 1,500 to pay back what I owed to the IRS. You know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna bless somebody. I'm gonna give the $3,500 away. No strings attached, not wanting anything back, but because God has called me to bless other people. That's how Christian community is different than any other community that you can and should experience here on earth. We are a giving community. We are a sacrificial community. We don't see our possessions as something to cling on to, but something to give away because God has blessed us. So why would we not want to bless others? I've been a part of many services, many conferences, many a small group, and I've very rarely have ever seen people walk out of the door so moved that they were willing to sell all that they had to give to the poor or give to the needy. But that's exactly what the early church was doing. They were giving all that they had. And we claim to receive so much from Jesus, but we hold on so quickly to everything he's given us instead of extending it to others. Here's the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus died for you, but because he died for you, you are free to bless other people. That we are loved by Jesus Christ, but because we are loved, we are free to love people unconditionally in response. That we have been forgiven because of what Jesus did, but because we've been forgiven, we are now free to forgive other people that we have been set free from our addictions and things that enslave us. And because that is true, now we can help others be set free from what enslaves them. That we have been blessed by Jesus and because we've been blessed, we can now bless other people. We love to receive blessings from God. God, thank you so much for blessing me this week. You came through and you blessed me right when I needed it. But what if God's saying, I blessed you so that you could take part of that blessing and extend it to someone else? and not hoard it for yourself. You have something to offer. As a Christian, you have a news to share. You have something to offer to people who are struggling. How will you utilize what God has blessed you with to bless other people? That's the difference of a community that's just diverse and a community that is representative of Jesus Christ. And we, we have a problem with this because we, we look at this in Matthew 16, 18. We know this verse. Jesus says to Peter, he says, and I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. 
And Jesus advances his mission through broken people like you and broken people like me. And we wanna say, how can Jesus possibly use messy people to do great things? Jesus has made it clear here that a commitment to Jesus and a commitment to the church is not two separate things. A commitment to Jesus is also in the same breath a commitment to the church, a commitment to community, that we can't separate those two commitments, that we love Jesus. We wanna say, Jesus, I love you, but that church, they got some messed up people there, man. I don't know about that one. And, and I would just say, man, you cannot separate. It's like someone coming to me and saying, Preston, I love what you're doing with the student ministry, brother. You're knocking out of the park. I see all these students and how much they love it. But your wife, man, she's missing the mark on worship. Man, she's missing the mark. It seems like everything's kind of off kilter. I don't understand it. It really confuses me. I don't really know what she's doing. I would say, dude, then you don't love me. To love me is to love my wife. To love Jesus is to love the church. There is no separation between the two commitments. What if the main way you were to find healing right now in your life for whatever you're dealing with was through a community that you got plugged in here at Forest Park and not through some self-help podcast or an empty bottle of Jack Daniels on the weekends? What if the way that you were gonna see your fire rekindled for your faith isn't by stepping away from the church or even by you coming every Sunday? but was by actually getting plugged in beyond just sitting in a seat and listening to me ramble for 40 minutes? What if all the answers to the prayers that you've been praying lately weren't found by you waiting in a room hoping God would miraculously speak to you, but the answers to your prayers were found in a small group of women just like you who go through the same things, who would speak life and encouragement over you as an instrument used by God to answer your prayers? That there is power in community to grow us and to love us, and not only us, but the people outside of us. And again, we want to say, I love Jesus, but hate the church. We have to see them as one. If you pull on the string of one of them, it all falls apart. There is no separation. So as I get ready to kind of wrap this up now, and I say that with, you know, 35 minutes left in my message. It's a joke. I don't have 35 minutes left. I know it's Labor Day. But as I get ready to wrap this up now, um, I think it's important that I always try to do this in my messages. I said this last week, that this is two things the church is and why the church is good for you. But I know how people think. I know how I think. You're probably saying, Preston, that kind of community honestly sounds amazing. That kind of relationships that you just described sounds like something I'm missing. And honestly, I need right now in my life. But I really don't know how to go about making or creating that community for me. I'm kind of lost. I'm kind of confused. I don't know what to do. I want it, but I don't know how to pursue it or cultivate it in my life. I want to give you three ways that you can practically start to create and cultivate and see that kind of community come up and show up in your life on a weekly basis. The first way that we do this is by learning to commit to something bigger than ourselves. One of the hardest things for us as American Christians to understand, which is a truth that I truly believe is true, even though I can't necessarily give you five Bible verses to back it up, is that no Christian consistently grows in their faith on their own. You cannot consistently grow in your faith by yourself. Well, pastor, all I need is Jesus in my Bible. Well, I mean, that is true to an extent. Of course you need Jesus, and of course you need the Word of God but with no sense of community in your life, how will you ever see a different perspective if no one's there to challenge it? How will you ever experience the power 
of someone looking you in the face and praying over you if all you need is Jesus in your Bible? How can you ever experience the great love and light of the gospel when you're in your darkest moments and someone comes alongside you and says, brother, I'm gonna walk with you through this. I don't got all the answers, but I'm gonna be here. We're gonna get through it together. How can you feel and experience that love if all your faith is, is just Jesus in my Bible? You can't. We need to know what it means to grow and cultivate community starts with an attitude that says, I must commit to something that's bigger than me. Robert, or Robbie, sorry, Galaty, I don't know how to pronounce that name. He writes a book called The Forgotten Jesus. It's an amazing book. If you can and you should read it, it, it will change how you read the Bible completely. He, he takes this idea of how we interpret the Bible through Western eyes, Western, by, by that I mean Western part of the world, America. And he says, we need to understand it through Eastern eyes, how the Jewish people would have understood the Bible today. One of the quotes he says is, Jewish people didn't primarily think of themselves as individuals, at least not in the way that we do today. In that culture, the individual was a part of a larger corporate body. The individual was only as strong as the family unit and was identified with the group he belonged to. The corporate identity, your place in the larger group was primary. And this is something we often miss in our identity as Christian believers today. That in Jewish culture, it wasn't, I'm a Christian, Preston Waller's good. I got my get out of hell free card today. I'm saved, brother. It was, I'm a part of something bigger than myself. I'm part of a family. I'm part of a larger group. I'm part of a larger movement. I'm a part of something that's bigger than just my needs and my stuff. The Jewish people would have understood and amen the mantra of the three musketeers, one for all and all for one. That what's best for me is not necessarily what's best for the group. What's best for the group may oftentimes make me have to shift my focus. And we have to understand that we live in a non-committed culture. America is full of non-committals. You don't have to commit to anything. You don't got to sign your name. Don't got to have a covenant written with your blood to make sure that you're actually going to come and do these things you said you do. We live in a non-committed culture, but I want to challenge you. If you don't commit to anything, what you're really committing to is doing nothing. If you only commit to something because it's good for you, then what you're really committing to is yourself. But the Bible says, no, we commit because we want to be a part of what's best for all people, not just me. That I can be killing it. I could be knocking it out of the park, pastor. I could be, you know, doing my Bible study, praying, coming to church every Sunday. I'm destroying my faith. I'm passionate, brother. I got a fire for Jesus. But I don't know about some of these people. It looks like they're struggling. Must suck for them. Hopefully they figure it out one day. I've got it down. And this principle is reiterated in the parable of the 99 sheep that what's best for the group is to get the one back. But we love to say, well, I'm part of the 99, brother. I'm good. That one needs to get his act together. Sounds like he needs to be on church on Sunday. But what's best for you, and if you're healthy, healthy people help other people get healthy. They don't just sit and say, I'm healthy. We must learn to help other people and see ourselves as something bigger. Because as much as we don't like to admit it, you must commit to something in your life that's bigger than yourself. Marriage doesn't work that way. You don't get to have non-committal vows on your wedding day. You don't get to non-commit to your employer by saying, I'll commit to you, but then I may not commit. I'll, I'll back out the day of. 
Your faith doesn't act any different. If you commit to Jesus, I must tell you, you are committing to being a part of something bigger than just yourself. And that's the number one way we're gonna have to change our mind and change our attitudes around how we grow in our faith. Number two is we must learn to be a contributor, not a consumer. Oh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this is a great quote. Um, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. That's the big part right there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany in World War II. You can imagine how crazy that was. He says, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light in the darkest of the unexpressed. It poisons the whole being of a person. Bonhoeffer's quotes basically saying, sin wants you to be by yourself. Sin wants you to isolate yourself from a group because it's in the darkness that it grows and it festers. But when you bring it into light, when you commit to being a part of a whole, sin decreases. It begins to shrivel, shrivel up. So again, I, I forgot that quote, but that's just a quote I thought was very impactful about the power of community. The second way that we will grow in our passion and learn to cultivate this kind of community I've described is by being a contributor and not a consumer. I feel like Forest Park has preached on this for a while now since the pandemic has kind of brought us back together. Um, if you've ever been on a cruise ship, you know that this is true. I went on a cruise with some of my friends who are here in the room today back in June. And one of the things I noticed just by stepping back and watching was this, that there are thousands of people on a cruise at one time, at least at one point, but there are only probably a couple of hundred people who are actually working the ship. But all the needs still go met. The food's ready on time. Your order comes out just like you ordered it. The food is great. And you get to watch all these shows. Everyone's fantastic in how they sing and how they perform. You can go to the pool and have a drink in your hand. By the time you finish it, five minutes later, someone will make the rounds, take your order again, and get you another one. No one's needs go unmet. But yet there's a big variety between those who contribute and those who consume. And I feel this is where the American church is, that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. And that we love to consume, we love to come and be fed as babies because we can't feed ourselves or we can't help others be fed. But if we, want to, if we want to see community form in our life the way I've described it, it's gonna start when we get up and we start contributing to the mission of Jesus Christ. Whether here at Forest Park, whether at the food outreach, whether at Souls, whether, whatever you wanna, Habitat for Humanity. But we begin to get up and contribute because we have too much to offer to this world. We oftentimes believe, I believe that maybe a lot of you think this way, that we think that the mission of God can only be really accomplished by pastors who are paid or ordained like myself, or by super Christians who have their act together. And I'm too messy to volunteer. I'm too messy to serve. I'm too messy to give. I'm too, I've got a lot going on. And I would say, brother, you haven't met some of our First Impressions teams members. I love you First Impressions teams who's in here. You guys are great. I'm just making a joke. But we often short circuit history because we read the New Testament. We see all these apostles writing these letters and they say, man, you know, Paul's writing half the New Testament. Every letter's like, I've seen God move. I've seen God do amazing things. He's doing miraculous things. He's freeing me from jail. Thousands are getting saved in my missionary journeys. We see Peter saying the same thing. We see John saying the same thing. James saying the same thing. And we read the New Testament and say, well, I guess God can only really use the teachers or the preachers, or the apostles, or the super Christians. But we're short-circuiting history by reading it that way. Day in and day out, the Christian faith moved and expanded because of faithful men and women, just like you and me. 
normal people who woke up every day and said, today I will commit to something bigger than myself and today I will choose to contribute and bless and follow Jesus instead of the ways I want to do it. And that is the reason that the church exploded, not because the super Christians did it, but because the Holy Spirit moved, number one, and number two, everybody bought in and said, I will contribute to this expansion of this amazing faith in Jesus Christ that I put my heart and soul into. And that is what we need today. In the New Testament, there are 59 one another statements. I won't read them to you, but they're all right there. These one another statements, again, are things like love one another, serve one another, strengthen one another, help one another. And they're all throughout the New Testament. And when we read them, we love to say, Pastor, these are great. Like, you're right. I I wish somebody would encourage me today. I need to be encouraged. Are you going to encourage me? And I say these and one another's when they were written in the New Testament weren't written to Christians to say, this is how you should be treated. But these one another's were written to Christians in the New Testament to say, this is how you should treat other people. That we don't come in and say, I want to be encouraged today. Someone encouraged me. But we walk through the doors and we say, how can I encourage somebody today that may need it? We love to be forgiven, but very few people love to forgive People love to be blessed. They very often don't like to bless other people. The New Testament church committed to these things, but they committed to doing them, not looking for them to be done to them, but to doing them for other people. And when we're a contributor, our lives look like this. We serve other people. We accept other people. We love other people. We carry each other's burdens because Jesus Christ carried our burden on the cross. And so this is what the church is supposed to look like. People doing these things to one another. And this leads to the last way that we can grow in this community that I've described today. And number three, you have to, you have to learn to be patient. I promise you, community that I described, diverse, giving, uh, missional community does not occur overnight. Never has, never will. A lot of people will try our small groups and they'll say, you know, pastor, I tried that small group one night. I went, they just sat around a table, made jokes, drank coffee, and I didn't experience that community feeling you told me I would experience. I didn't walk out of there on fire for Jesus like you told me I would if I plugged into community here at Forest Park. Well, that's not gonna happen. Brother, be consistent. Keep showing up, keep praying. See how God honors faithfulness, consistent faithfulness. God always honors It will never happen overnight. You'll never come into Forest Park and one day just magically see your community form. It takes time and we have to be patient. You can't show up once every two months and expect community to pop out of the thin air. You can't expect to run to your car for lunch as soon as I say amen without talking to people and knowing people without and expect community to just come one day. We have to be patient. Patience is a virtue. Patience is something even myself I don't have. But this kind of community shows up because of your neediness, not in spite of it. And God will use community like this with unexpected people in unexpected ways to help your fire that you feel like you've lost and your passion that you feel like has been zapped from you rekindle. And you'll see the more faithful we are to community and committing ourselves to others and not just ourselves, the more God will honor it, the more God will bless that traction and the more you'll feel known, the more you'll feel accepted, the more you'll feel loved and the more you'll see the gospel actually take place in your life. You'll see and feel what true gospel love looks like instead of just reading about it. 
And this is what community is like. And my just closing now, um, you know, I think community is probably the biggest thing that we miss as the American church. But if you can take anything from this message, I hope that you take this, that the key to unlocking that passion and rekindling it, and not just unlocking it again, but sustaining it is by looking to the person to your left, looking to the person to your right and saying, I have to start being intentional with who I build community with and where I build community. Gospel-centered community is the most beautiful thing. If you've ever experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. And some of us have never experienced it. We know the gospel, but we don't know the community that's formed because of the gospel. I hope that we take it seriously, the call to community. You cannot follow Jesus without following the church and the community that comes because of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the ways that it speaks to us, that it enlightens us. Thank you uh, for your spirit that continuously shows me what it means to, to follow you and to be faithful to you. God, there's a lot of things uh, that we miss and we may miss the mark on God, but you're faithful to us even when we're faithless to you. You give us grace even when we don't deserve it. God, will be, would we become men and women who not only accept the grace that you've given to us, but God, want to extend it to others. And God, we can't do that apart from community. May we stop isolating ourselves. May we stop struggling on our own and instead begin to form community that's diverse but, and challenges us and pushes us, but also, God, become a part of a church and part of a community that sees what we're called to do, not just meet and gather together and create holy huddles, but created to live on mission and bless and serve the least of these in our lives and our communities. Would you bless us as we enjoy this long weekend and allow us to do all things for the honor and glory of your name. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Before I let you go, one last announcement. I did this last week. I'll do it again today. Um, We have Love Thy City coming up on September 17th, which is a Saturday from 8 to 1 p.m. We have a variety of projects. One's the Habitat for Humanity that we're going to be partnering with them. Another is the Wash House. We're going to be giving people free uh, clothes, wash and dry for the day. Um, And then we have also the clothing drive, the clothing giveaway that we have planned uh, to bless people that are less fortunate with some nice clothes. I would really, really, really encourage you to consider serving with us, consider uh, committing to something maybe bigger than your Saturday and coming out and serving and loving on our city in a practical way. You can sign up by going to fplive.org slash love thy city or, and I've kind of seen this, um, some of you don't like going to the link. We have hard copies that you can fill out, KidVenture people. The hard copies are on Allison's table out there in the KidVenture lobby. Those of you not KidVenture people, there are hard copies to sign up and register at the New Here area on your way out. If you really can't commit to coming, whether you're out of town or something, I would really encourage you to commit by giving financially for the wash house. The owner's already said he'll double everything we raise. So if we raise X amount, he'll double it for us to be able to bless people. And also consider giving the clothes that you can donate for the clothing giveaway. Gently used clothes, no stains, nothing you wouldn't want somebody to wear. We really would love to see you guys uh, be there on Saturday. But if you can't, we would love for you to donate. And we would love for you to consider donating some clothes to be a part of the movement to bless Elizabeth City on Saturday, September 17th. With that being said, guys, enjoy your Labor Day. I love you guys.